Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This story, you may have seen this, some talk lately about uh, not in my backyard stories in general, but this one is a case in Vancouver, and this time, neighbors are upset with an eight-child daycare. Yeah, what could be controversial about that? Well, we'll find out, because they took their outrage all the way to City Hall, Oh, not in our neighborhood. We're not going to have an eight-child daycare around here. And what did City Hall do? Vancouver City Hall said, yeah, you're right, and it got rejected. Well, Lisa McCormick is the owner and founder of Douglas Park Academy, and our guest, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Lisa, this is a bit of a shocker to me, and I want to back up and find out a little bit more about what your intentions were and this major roadblock, how it came up and kind of squelched the whole thing. So what happened here? Well, so we have um, a eight-child daycare currently running um, for the past year, uh, kind of in like our secondary suite. Um, and we have such a huge wait list, and we're across the street from Douglas Park. Uh, there's always family. Every, every day we go to the park to take the children to play, and people come up to us pretty much every day just, oh, how can I get in, and do you have a wait list? And, you know, so we always have to tour, turn many, many, many families away because we just don't have um, any more spaces. And, uh, yeah, so we were just trying. So we thought, well, because we live upstairs, we thought, well, maybe we'll try to put one upstairs and add eight more spaces and, and try to accommodate um, just the demand in the community and parents and families. To bring it up um, to 16. To bring it up to 16, yeah. So it would be eight upstairs and then a separate eight downstairs. Yeah. And um, yeah. And uh, so we put in our thing to the city, our um, proposal. Uh, and then part of that would be um, getting just um, thoughts and comments from the uh, neighboring houses. Um, and the outrage just kind of poured in about how dare we want to do this. And uh, we were very surprised by um, what they were all saying because we've never had a complaint. Everyone has our you know, personal phone numbers. We lived here for 12 years um, and uh, no one ever complained about anything to us. No one ever said anything negative um, about the daycare to us. Um, so we didn't think it'd be a big deal. And Lisa, I want to get to that outrage in just a moment, but back up. uh, First of all, you've already gone through the process of getting this approved the first time for eight spaces. Is this a license not required daycare or have you already gone through the whole licensing process? Uh, No, so this would be a second, um, like a licensed daycare upstairs. So in order to get the license, you have to already prove a certain amount of things for the protection of children, right? 
Yes, yes. The house has to be fully up to code. Um, fire comes in. Um, licensing comes in. The city comes in. It's a. It took us two and a half years to get our downstairs going. It's a very expensive, lengthy process that we had to go through to get that one approved. You paid the money. You uh, went ahead and it got approved. And there's no problem right now. You're not under review or anything from the authorities that be on this, right? Yes. No, not at all. Okay. So let me ask you the obvious question. What is it of concern to your neighbours? What we got from the neighbours was mostly about parking um, and um, noise from the children playing in the yard is is what they were sort of bringing up. Okay. Parking, uh, I guess that would be pick-up, drop-off, I guess, type thing because parents that yeah. use daycare aren't going to be parked there long, right? Yes, it's it's there may be in and out, you know, everyone has to go to work and stuff. Like there may be five, ten minutes maybe at the most that they've that they're kind of parked on the street um in front of our house. And in front of our house is um loads of it's just free free parking. So it's not permitted, it's not residential only. Um it's just like right in front of our house is, is anyone can park there for any period of time. Yeah, okay. I can see somewhat of a point there. Uh, but the second uh, part is the noise, uh, children noise. Well, you're across from a park. Uh, did the neighbors not consider that when they're uh, moving in? Uh, that's our question. We don't really understand if they if they were you know if they wanted a more quiet neighborhood. Um, you know, we're kind of sandwiched between two elementary schools, two hospitals. Um, and then we have this gigantic, beautiful park right directly in front of us. So there's two huge fields that are rented out, um, you know, athletic uh, for like athletes um, for soccer and baseball year round. And then there's children, there's a pool, there's a community center. Like it's a, you know, very bustling, busy neighborhood. Yeah, so I call really that a get, happy neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't really get what the whole noise Uh, was we usually go to the park to play because the playground there is awesome. If any parents attend there, they know how great it is. Um, And um, yeah, so we just, we were surprised. So you go to City Hall because you have to run this through that layer of government too. And to your surprise, what did your neighbors actually do? Because they're quite vocal. Yeah, so when we went to um, our Board of Variants meeting, um, they, uh, a handful of them showed up. and uh, they just um, were allowed to speak in person to the uh, to the board, um, and they uh, yeah just kind of outpoured their it, to us it seemed like disgust of of you know how could you want this you know additional daycare um, the way they were kind of putting it was it's going to be this you know huge uh, monstrosity of a of a daycare and it's going to be so much noise and so much. Um, uh, you know, uh, like more action on the street. And, and uh, so that's what they were kind of worried about, just the noise and the parking and the, you know, added congestion and whatnot. So. And how many spoke? How many of your neighbors came out to? Um, I think there was nine there in total. Wow. So there was a few husband-wife teams that came and then a few, you know, single people that came as well. Okay, so this was an organized effort. Uh, your neighbors did some some legwork. Yes, yes, definitely, yeah. Okay, I want to continue this because I find it, and I don't mean this in an insensitive way, but it is a fascinating story of what can happen at City Hall when people get uh, 
a bee in their bonnet about something. We've been talking about Douglas Park Academy, which is in Vancouver, across the street from Douglas Park. And our guest is Lisa McCormick, the owner and founder of Douglas Park Academy. She saw a need. She started talking with parents who came up to her and said, do you have any more spaces? Well, she had an eight-child daycare and wants to go to 16 after being a year in business, doing that successfully. Great. Fantastic. Except that she has to go to City Hall. And going to City Hall, she came across, oh, at least nine of her neighbors, many expressing outrage over the idea of having an expansion of this daycare, outrage because of parking, and, oh yeah, noisy kids. We've been talking with Lisa about this. Lisa, I hope I've got most of that summary right, but were you shocked by your neighbors or disappointed? Um, I mean, definitely shocked as... um you know, like I was saying before, most of them have our, my personal phone number. They could have easily texted me or called me or, you know, hey, I'm in a meeting today or, you know, lots of people work from home now. Um, then we could have easily moved our outdoor time that day or whatnot. Um, and, uh, yeah, just surprised that um, just a lot of them seemed so uh, angry about it when we haven't heard any uh, complaints either through the city, through licensing, personally to me. Um, that's what I think we were most surprised about that. Um, yeah, just because no one has ever said anything to us. We talked about, about this. They did yeah. their legwork and they got a representation of enough of them going to City Hall and others, I guess, uh, expressing their concerns in writing. Uh, but uh, it goes to City Hall and City Hall says what? Uh, so City Hall said um, we were lacking of parking. Um, which they required two spaces, which we have on site. Um, and then there's ample parking in front. And then it was the neighborhood's um, non-approval was the two things that they were uh, concerned about. So now this is turned down. You remain with an eight care, half the size of potential child care. You don't have to get rid of the eight already there, do you? No, no, no. Okay, so what are the next steps for you in this? There's still a need, obviously, not only in Vancouver, but anywhere, basically in the province, for these type of child care, uh, child cares. We know that. Uh, what are you going to do? Um, I mean, for now, we can't really do anything. We're just going to kind of keep running our, our space downstairs. And, um, yeah, we've, we've been attempting to look at um, some of the letters from neighbors were, well, why don't you rent a commercial space? And I mean, anyone who has looked into it um, for a preschool or a daycare, it is extremely, um, you know, I can even say impossible to find a a proper um, commercial site that City of Vancouver will um, accept. It has to have an outdoor space, which has to be massive. Um, You know, the list goes on. I mean, anyone who's kind of looked into it knows how difficult it would be to find a commercial uh, site in Vancouver um, that's not you know fifty thousand dollars a month in rent um, to kind of to kind of get a, a commercial space going. Um, not that so it's commercial, um, but or free. But uh, what about a church uh, or something like that in the neighborhood? Yes, there's lots of them that are in churches, um, but the it has to, it goes by um, if the church allows you to have uh, to rent out that space too. So there's a lot of uh, centers that are in churches. Um, but yeah, a lot of them were taken up or ones I've definitely gone the church route over the years um, just to see. Uh, and a lot of them just don't want to uh, rent their space out too. 
Lisa, what are the parents telling you, the ones that are already um, uh, among the eight? Uh, the ones like the, my current families? Yeah, are, your current families. Yeah. Are they behind you? Uh, are they shocked? Do they want to see or even talk to more of their friends and say, yeah, go see Lisa. She's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've had um, uh, cousins that have come in to try to get a space, uh, neighbors, um, just friends of friends. And, you know, they, everyone emails me, and oh, I, I know so-and-so, and I know so-and-so, and so-and-so is my cousin. Um, but, uh, yeah, when we when we told our current families that we got denied for the second space, everyone was just, just so disappointed. And uh, when I had reached out to the families on my wait list, because um, I, I was kind of saying to them, like, we might have eight more spaces opening, but we have to kind of wait and see. Um, and they were just all, you know, they're quite upset because they just couldn't wrap their head around the fact that there's such a need in this community, in the city for daycares, for families. Um, and here we are trying to open just a small one of eight children and just got, you know, shut down and denied by the city and the, the uh, neighborhood. Lisa, as a final thought, there must be others that want to operate uh, daycares or perhaps expand the ones they've got. Uh, Listening to this right now, any advice for them if they are in the same situation and have to go up against their city? Um, Ooh, not really. Just it it takes a lot of time. Um, You just have to be diligent with it and just kind of keep trucking through. Um, We really need more childcare in this city. Uh, and just, you know, we're there to help and support our community and just kind of keep trucking. And it, it's, it's a lot of uh, kind of setbacks. You know, it's, it's a very um, two steps back, one foot forward kind of a thing. But just keep going and we're doing a positive thing and we're supporting our community. Lisa, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. And good afternoon to you. Thanks for sharing this portion of your afternoon with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. Well, there's a new water plying the water, or do water, there's a new ferry plying the waters between Vancouver and Nanaimo. And if you have a chance, you may see this around the Lionsgate Bridge. A good looking ferry. Love the colors on this, kind of a aqua green. Uh, it's Hello Ferry. Started sailing today, four sailings per day. There and back, there and back. And uh, this is going to be something that uh, may be successful. There have been other attempts at this type of thing in the past. And it's not to say that this first sailing for Hello today is not without a bit of a struggle. It comes after a couple of um, hopes for a start on Monday and the gain Tuesday. That didn't happen, but now it's underway. Now it is starting, and uh, those vessels are applying the waters. So what is this new sailing that we have? Let's bring in Alistair Caddick with Hello Ferries and Vancouver Island Ferry Company. Uh, Good afternoon. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for uh, your interest in our service. Um, I appreciate it. Well, congratulations to you. And uh, interest indeed. I mean, I always find these things fascinating. But that being said... I also know on the calendar that Monday, August 15th, or August, uh, would have been 14th. August 14th was supposed to be the start date, but the weather got you, right? It did, but uh, today was our inaugural sailing, and we are just thrilled uh, at the positive reaction we've had from the passengers that um, you know came aboard this morning in Nanaimo for 
our inaugural sailing, and I was there down here in at the Vancouver dock as they arrived, and a lot of smiling faces, people really thrilled with the service, and um, and then we had a boarding from Vancouver back to Nanaimo at noon uh, with, once again, lots of excited people because it's creating a, a new connection, um, a better connection, and a much-needed connection between Nanaimo and downtown Vancouver. Sure, and I would definitely agree with you on that, having been around for years and knowing that there is a need in an area, especially Nanaimo and the Mid-Island, which is starting to grow so terribly quickly. But I also don't want to ignore what happened on Monday, and I don't want you to pivot too far away from that question that I had. What happened, and is it going to happen again if we get into this type of weather? Because we do have wind out in the street. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So uh, this this Monday, um, well, I'll call it Sunday Monday, um, was probably a um, un, you know a, a non characteristic uh, weather for the summer. There were uh, both power outages in Nanaimo and then gale force wind warnings across the strait. And quite frankly, um, for us as our inaugural sailing, we wanted to take an abundance of caution and be conservative for our first sailing. Um, and so we made the decision uh, to cancel uh, those initial sailings, as difficult as it was. And we certainly um, were empathetic to our disappointed passengers who really wanted uh, to be on that first sailing. But we know it was the right decision um, as we get our sea legs. Um, we are a brand new company, uh, and we certainly didn't want our very first sailing to be uh, one in in high winds and and heavy waters and and not give customers uh, you know that first sailing experience uh, to be a positive one. Um, as we move forward in the future and as we get uh, our sea legs, um, there will be fewer and fewer of those events uh, going forward. We're very confident in that. Fair enough, Alistair. How did today's sailings, the first half, I guess, how have they gone? Anything you've learned from it? Uh, any experiences that uh, or any tweaks you'll have to make? So one of the one of the differences between us and perhaps other companies is uh, we're a private local company and our team is on the front line. So we are down um, on the sailings, on the docks, listening to our customers and constantly trying to uh, see what they what their needs are and, and improve. Um, and so that was the same today. You know, all of our team are out there uh, on the you know. On the, on, the, on the vessels, on the crossings, talking to customers, and we are going to constantly listen and, and make things better. We know things like bikes are really important. We know things like big luggage is really important, and we're listening to that, and we are going to adapt and improve to uh, meet their needs. So it's, um, today was our first sailing. It was a fantastic experience. People um, were thrilled with it. We were so proud to finally deliver this much-needed service. Um, and it's only going to get better. As, as we learn, we're constantly listening. Um, we're going to improve the service and, uh, to meet the needs of customers um, on the island and here in Vancouver that want to get to the island. What is your customer base? Is it tourists or is it business or a combination of the two? How does it kind of uh, weigh out or slant? Yeah, which way, a, which way a, more? It's a great yeah, it's a great question. And it's why we're confident that, that there's a lot of demand Um you know, and perhaps some of the previous attempts uh, were, were less successful. The, the population certainly has grown a lot on Vancouver Island. 
um, and 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 of course it's grown a lot here in Vancouver. And what we've seen is there's a lot of demand for visiting friends and family, right? I live in Vancouver. My friends live in Nanaimo. Uh, there's a lot of demand for tourism to Vancouver Island, um, more so than, than in the past. It's, you know, it's a fantastic place to visit, and people now know that. Um, and then, you know, Nanaimo is one of the fastest-growing cities in Canada, um, and a lot of those uh, people in Nanaimo um, with the, you know, with the, the, the COVID and, and the move to hybrid work models, um, there are people there that um, can commute to Vancouver, you know, be it one time, once a week, twice a week, or three times a month. And a service like this will allow them to live in Nanaimo and, and come to work in Vancouver um, as a convenient commute option. So there's a lot of different uh, customer bases that will be attracted to the service, which gives us the comfort that there's demand. There must have been some people along the way that said, you know, Alistair, give your head a shake because it's not cheap to start something like this and we know of the failures. You have mentioned, and I have mentioned, that there is a difference now. Population is growing, and by quite a mm-hmm. bit since the last time we tried it. Is there anything else in your business model that gives you confidence that you'll make a go of it this time around where others have failed? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And we certainly looked at some of the past failures and we know there's skepticism in the marketplace and uh, it's really upon hello and, and our teams to deliver. And if we deliver, that skepticism will go away and we're already starting to, you know, we, we already see it today. Um, but some of the big differences between ourselves and some of the previous attempts, uh, we've got really great partnerships uh, with in Nanaimo, with the Nanaimo Port Authority and the Nanaimo First Nation. We've got long-term partnerships here at our dock with the Vancouver Harbor Flight Center. So we know that we've got long-term agreements to be operating this route. We've got great investors who have invested a lot to make sure that we're long-term sustainable. So that allowed us to buy two brand-new vessels. Um, that allowed us to bring on uh, full-time crews. And those, you know, and then certainly with the growth in population, all of those factors are contributing to what we think will be uh, a long-term success. And we have to, you know, take some time to um, win over the population. Uh, we will. We, we, we're confident that we'll, um, you know, win over the, the skeptics uh, through, through good service. Well, part of the good service is, I would imagine, 70 minutes. Uh, that's pretty quick going across uh, from harbor to harbor. Uh, price point is what for an average ticket? Yeah, so um, the price point, uh, so we have uh, pricing for seniors. We have pricing for uh, children. Uh, we have pricing for adults. Um, if I use an adult as an example, your first time sailing can be as low as twenty nine ninety nine. Um, regular uh, would be thirty nine ninety nine, and I, I think you hit that. You know, you hit the right point. Uh, time. Um, you know, the crossing from Nanaimo to Vancouver or Vancouver to Nanaimo is uh, seventy minutes, and that's downtown to downtown. So, if you're in downtown Vancouver and and you're down at the convention center, which is sort of you know the center of uh, downtown, you can board right there, and you're in you're on the island in seventy minutes. Um, versus going to Tawasin or Horseshoe Bay and all the time that, uh, that, that that takes. So if your time matters to you, and, and we think it does for a lot of uh, people, um, this is great value uh, to save you a lot of time. Sure does, and uh, cheaper than an Uber from uh, downtown Vancouver to uh, Tawasin or exactly, some of the other places. Right? Yeah. 
Appreciate yeah. your time, Alistair. All the best of luck to you. I appreciate your interest. Thank you so much. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jazz Joe Hall. Now, here's a story that really doesn't surprise me too much because we all know that concert ticket prices have gone sky high. They've gone up much more than even inflation. But with that comes opportunity for those who have a dubious nature to make a little bit more money doing it the wrong way. Ticket scams are also increasing, and we're seeing more examples of that as some of the big names start to appear right across the country, right across North America. And it's not just the big names. Some of the scams even involve smaller names and smaller venues. But this one really catches me by surprise and disappoints me. The tale of an Ontario mother scammed for Taylor Swift tickets. Here's her story. A mother's warning about the risks of getting too excited about buying Taylor Swift concert tickets for kids. Tickets for the Toronto concerts in November 2024 will be tough to find. But then Anav Feldman found someone on Twitter offering four tickets the seller claimed were up for grabs. It would be a surprise for her daughter Maya away at summer camp. I just put a blind eye to it and kind of thought of how happy my daughter would be if I could get her these tickets and surprise her on pickup day. It was four tickets at $1,600. Through email, she was told she'd get the tickets after sending the money by electronic transfer. Feldman asked her friends what they thought. They told me it's very common. Most people do that. So I, I believed it. Feldman and the seller traded multiple emails. She was still unconvinced and acknowledged that in the emails. I'm sorry, as I say, I'm so new to this. And to be honest, I'm so scared to be scammed. Yes, I can do e-transfer. But the tickets didn't come. The seller ended up asking for more money, claiming Ticketmaster was charging a $250 fee. I stopped right there and I knew in my gut that something was completely wrong. So that's when I went and I started reading on Ticketmaster, which said all transfers are completely free. The scammer had the money. Feldman wouldn't be getting any tickets. And unfortunately, she's not alone. By the way, that story from Global News talking just before airtime with some of the producers here and some of my friends, and they've all fallen victim to scams of some sort. And it got me thinking, you know, it's we got to bring in Kingsley Bailey. He is, if anyone knows how the ticket systems work, it's him. And he probably also has some experience with the scam side, not himself, of course, but uh, being able to weed out some of the scams. So let's bring in Kingsley Bailey, General Manager of VancouverTicket.com. Kingsley, always a pleasure to have you. 
to have you on. Um, you must be hearing so many stories about this, eh? Uh, Bruce, thanks for having me. And before I go any further, I want to apologize. I know that when you had me on last time, I kept on calling you Jazz. I apologize. You know what? I'm in great company. If you call me Jazz, that's only an honor. And uh, it's uh, such a pleasure to be called Jazz Joe Hall. There you go, Jazz. Enjoy your vacation. Thanks, Kingsley. (laughs) But uh, I'll call you by your name, too. All right. Bruce, Bruce, it's so prolific right now. And before I get anywhere, I want to start on this is, because there's so many different directions I go on, but let's start off with the word verified seller. When you go onto the Ticketmaster site and it says verified seller, that means Ticketmaster is saying that whoever is selling these tickets is legitimate and you're going to get in. So we got to start there because then I can work my way backwards. When Ticketmaster is also the primary seller of reselling of tickets, so they're not the primary, they're also the secondary. And when they put the word verified, that means those tickets are verified. Who's to say that those tickets are not Ticketmasters and they're just making some extra money? That's one thing. I just want to get that out of there so people understand what's going on. But there are so many new scams going on in this dynamic ticket business. It's just unbelievable. People are coming up with all kinds of cockamamie stories on how to get money out of people. They're saying this, that, we can't make the show. We're not going to the show. Send us money. Um, and then we'll send you tickets. And that opens up a whole new can of worms for people when they're buying tickets because now that they have to trust somebody that they can't look in the eye, uh, they don't know who they are, they don't know if they're in here or, or in Europe or in Russia or wherever, they have no idea who that other person is on the line. And by this new system, it's forcing people to have to go that route. Ticketmaster wants that. They want this kind of situation to happen, so you only go and buy from a verified seller. Um, And that's kind of why I still have my storefront, because they know where to find me each and every day. And I'll tell you this, I've been scanned. I just got scanned just the other day. Uh, I got, and and people can go out there and think of this, is I got, uh, somebody told me to send them money. Uh, They told me that they had a certain business in town, and uh, I verified that that business was correct. They gave me an email address, and then they gave me a phone number, so I was able to get a hold of them. I sent the money to the email address, not until they confirmed there was a proper email address and proper phone number. I sent it, and then they said they never got it. I got a verification uh, from my bank notification that it was sent, and it was an automatic deposit. Now, this customer said that they gave me their email address and no, it didn't say, but they gave me their email address, and I sent it, and they confirmed it, and I sent it, and now they're saying that they never received the money. So I don't know what's going on, but there's obviously some way that they can circumvent, somebody can circumvent and get money, and I've already gotten notification that it's been sent, and it wasn't. I'm trying to figure out how the heck can this happen? The money was sent. I got confirmation, and now the customer's saying, the person I bought them from saying, we didn't get them. But you know, the the day, it's that old thing, if it, only they use their powers for good and not evil, because some of these scams and scammers take a lot of thought and a lot of planning and a lot of ways to make it look legit. You, with VancouverTicket.com, end up eating the losses, I would imagine. And I'm guessing you've eaten quite a few over the years. Oh, I've eaten quite a few over the years. But you know what? Here's this is I know where this business is. I know that I sent the money to a, an address that they provided me, and they're trying to say they never got it. I don't really care uh, what they say, but the money was sent to an address that they 
that they provided me. And probably sometime next week, I'm going to be protesting in front of their store because I'm out money to an address that they asked, they gave me to send the money to. And so this is what I can do because I do my due diligence the best that I possibly can to make sure that it's the money's going to the right place. I've done it. And now they're denying that it's me. It's not up to me to find out where the money went. It's up to them and reimburse me. Because had they not given me any email address, I would not be out of any money. And I don't think they really understand that. They think that they're scot-free on this, but it just doesn't work like that. And like I said, they're, and their business, I don't think they really realize, their business is like two blocks away from where I am. It's a pizza business over there. Yeah, that's all I can say. I can't say anything more than that. But and I will. Be, <laughs> You're painting a I, I pretty will, good picture for someone that uses Google search. Yeah, no, no. There's lots of pizza places around here. It's one of those double pizza places. But I, uh, but I can't. I'm not going to go into any uh, any specifics. But I'm sure if they were to do their homework and find out where I'm going to be standing with a a placard standing there that I was I was ripped off by the person at this menu. I sent money and I never got any product for it. When that's true, I sent money to a. Uh, an address, and I did not receive the funds. Kingsley, I know you come across other types of scams. What are the most common ones that you end up seeing, the ones that they try to pull the wool over even your eyes? Oh, you know what? It happens all the time. Like, all I can say is it happens all the time. And, And here's another example. So I called somebody out on Facebook, and I said, call me back, uh, uh, call, uh, call me because I want to discuss the tickets that he had for sale. And so he says, no. And I'm going, well, that's a, that's a, that's an automatic indicator of a scammer because if they're not willing to give you a number, I'm not willing to buy the ticket. So I replied to him, you're a scammer. And I use a, I use some epitaphs. I use some words that I cannot say on the, on the air. And because the, the best way to really weed these guys out is I want I want your number, call you or you call me and I'll pick them up on call display. But he said, no. So I said that, the guy got me banned. <laughs> okay. he, got my, he got me paid banned. I'm la- and I'm going, I'm doing my due diligence to make sure that I'm buying from a legitimate person. I'm not, I just don't want to hand my money out to anybody. And this guy got me banned. So this is all wrong. This whole system is messed up. And we gotta, we got to blow it up and start all over again because so many people are getting scammed. They've gotta, there needs to be transparency. We need to know exactly how many tickets are being held back by Ticketmaster, if they're the verified reseller, the reseller, or the reseller, and, and all the tickets are theirs. But it's not going to happen until more people get taken advantage of and are ripped off from funds, hard-earned money, before any changes are going to happen. Okay, what kind important. of changes can happen? What can we look at? What's needed? Well, first thing is transparency, because right now, this uh, this uh, Rod Stewart show, um, it, well, not just Rod Stewart, but a lot of different shows, is when the shows go on sale, they call it dynamic pricing. And they, and they say it's dynamic pricing because there's so much a demand on tickets. But if there's only 15 or 20 percent of the tickets that go on sale, that's a huge demand. Um, if there's only 20 percent, but you can only tell if there's if it truly is a real demand for the tickets if you have transparency. So if they only release 20% of the tickets, you cannot have dynamic pricing. And that would really, really open up the, open up the curtain so you really see what uh, these promoters are doing. I think That's that, first well, maybe a good start. Kingsley, always a pleasure to have you on there. And uh, you know my name now, right? Yeah, Bruce, of course. I'll never forget. <laughs> Okay. Thanks so much, my friend. Kingsley Bailey, General Manager of VancouverTicket.com. Great to have you listening. Bruce Plankett in for Jazz. 
You know, there was a time a few months ago when I seriously considered getting an electric scooter. I say that to somebody, they start laughing because they thought I was talking about a, like, Rydum scooter. Uh, but no, I thought about uh, getting an electric scooter that you actually stand on. And I thought, you know, that'd be fantastic. What a great way of getting from one place to another. And uh, it just makes a whole lot of sense. And then my family had a talk with me and said, do you really want one of those? Are you safe enough to have one of those? And the answer to the second part of it was, no, I'm pretty klutzy. And I'm not a big risk taker per se, but uh, I could see myself getting in an accident. Helmet or not, it would probably not be a good idea. And then a few things happened to me over the past couple of weeks, and I'll share them with you. One of them, uh, in Langley, driving down the street, and not an electric scooter, but an electric bike, an e-bike, cut me off. I was making a left-hand turn illegally, and this guy comes up very quickly on my left-hand side. I barely was able to see him. If I looked down for a second, I would have hit him. But uh, I was cut off. And uh, he just kept on whizzing by at a speed that he would not be able to achieve, guaranteed looking at him, if he was not on an electric bike. And then on Monday, I was in downtown Kamloops by the Plaza Hotel, and I saw some young man or old kid coming down on an electric scooter and uh, just barely weaving in and out of people on the sidewalk And then jumping right into traffic, going across the street, across the red light. And I thought, boy, that's got to be dangerous. I live in a townhouse complex. I've seen kids on electric scooters and electric bikes. And I think, you know what? I see the appeal. You can get a bigger charge. You can go faster on e-vehicles. But there's got to be some danger. Well, that brings us to our next guest. Cullen Goodyear is an Ironman triathlete. She was badly injured by an electric scooter this past July. We're going to talk with her because she's making the call for some stricter rules when it comes to e-vehicles. Good afternoon, Cullen. Oh, hi there, Bruce. I love your story. It's great. Well, yeah. and exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's something even before we start talking about this, uh, this story of yours, I've been thinking about for a while because there is a danger in here and I don't think it means that you have to get away from e-vehicles but you have to be smarter about them and their popularity has certainly increased in the last couple of years and their speeds have increased in the last couple of years too and uh, you know I'm a bigger guy I'm over 200 pounds but uh, somebody riding the same e-vehicle as me is going to be able to go a lot faster if uh, they're half my size, and that happens. But let's talk about your story. You're a triathlete. Tell me about your athletic endeavors first, what you've been training for, what you've done, and then we'll talk about what happened in July. Okay. So I've been doing Ironman triathlons for many, many, many years. I'm an older female, and um, like many, I've done maybe 36 of the fulls in, in my life. I was uh, training to go to world championships in Hawaii for October 14th um, when I was on coming back from a long ride 
beautiful last July. This July was one of the first nice sunny summer, sunny summer days, and I was having a completely lovely time. And then this accident happened where this, similar to what you were talking about, I was cut off. I was about to make a left-hand turn. And um, I had signaled, and I know that he was he was behind me because I didn't pass him. But he just smashed right into me, going very very fast. And then he said to me, he said, "Well, he left the scene." But before he left the scene, he said, "Oh, I didn't know you were going to turn and go up on the sidewalk." But I had been signaling to to do just that, and he was a young male and out for a joyride. But there's no, there was no remorse. There was no like, let me make sure that you're okay. Nothing like that. So he kind, he did leave the scene, and it's just, it is become very prevalent. And they, I think they think they have total, um, total right to do whatever they want in these machines, and they're just going too fast. And like you said, your story was perfect because it's very similar to mine. Well, I've argued this in the past. I think that we're also moving into a day and age where people don't use turn signals or if they use turn mm-hmm. signals, they're around others that never bother to look or think or look out for turn mm-hmm. signals. And yeah. that in itself is dangerous, as any motorcycle mm-hmm. rider would tell you. But yeah. uh, your story, you were left hurt by this whole thing. Oh, very, yeah. Well, I had um, a, um, a broken hip and then two puncture wounds on the side of my leg that was the one that crashed to the ground. So I was, I went down and um, my bike was on top of me and I was able to unclip my right foot. But then, and, they, and then all this, because it was at, <clears throat> an intersection is very busy, pardon me, <clears throat> a lot of people came around and then there was, everybody was asking me whether I needed an ambulance. And I said, well, I'm not too sure. Let me see if I can unclip my left foot. But of course I couldn't. And then um, we finally unclipped my left foot. They called the ambulance, but I was worried also that my bike might get stolen. But the park rangers were there, and they took care of that. They actually got in touch with the Vancouver um, police force, and the, my bike was taken away safely. And I was taken by ambulance to uh, St. Paul's with an emerge for, I don't know, like um, I probably had the um, X-ray um, I don't know, maybe six hours later or so, and they found out that I had broken my hip. I don't know but, if this is a yeah. good news story or a bad news story when I start to think of you as an athlete, um, a triathlete, which means you're, you know, Ironman, you're up in the, the top 1% of the 1%. But that means that you, I guess, can't compete, also means you survive. No. Yeah, good point. So both. I can't race this year, unfortunately. Um, I'm still going out. I, I'm going to Hawaii at the end of August. Anyway, just because I I have two rental units out there, so I go out anyway. And I have lots of friends who are doing the race. So my family will be coming and will be cheering our friends on who are doing the race. But also, yes, you're so right, because I was so lucky that I'm fairly, I'm pretty well. And um fairly strong so I only broke my hip but I could easily have broken an arm or a clavicle or you know had it or lost your life I mean yeah lost my life (laughs) and that's what some people have been saying so I am lucky because I was I am fairly fit in my recovery because I know well I have a pretty good idea how to how to train my body I've been able to recover 
pretty quickly, uh, more quickly than other people. Plus, I've been, because of my training history, I've been very diligent about doing the exercises that were prescribed by the hospital, that sort of thing. Plus, I've added my own that I used to do anyway. So I'm recovering, and I'm I'm sure I will recover unless I mean. Well, you've got the discipline in there of being an Ironman triathlete. That's got to help out. Yeah, and I'm keen, and I'm very, very dedicated. I just want to come back. I really do want to. This isn't. I. It won't be. Well, I'm not planning on it being the end of me. I want. I want to do more after this. So I am kind of dedicated to the whole thing. Now you would have to. Sorry, but there are so many people who are out there who who can't withstand these injuries that are going to happen with these bikes or these scooters or any of it. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. You know, you're somebody that uh, in your training, you've spent a lot of time on bicycles. So Mm. you've probably been out and about and seen electric vehicles, uh, scooters and and the sort. Were you ever worried about them beforehand? Did you experience any close calls before this happened? Uh, Well, that's a really another good point because this year they've bloomed. Wow. I don't know how else to put it. So all of a sudden this year, there are many, many, many. And yes, we've all noticed how many more there are. And the the fact that you can rent them for almost nothing. And the green bikes, the lime bikes that are here on the North Shore, a, a kid can hop on one of those and go tootling around it. There were two boys going north on Lonsdale sidewalks the other day on one of those, two of those lime bikes, just rip, ripping up the sidewalk. No helmets, nothing. So there has to, we have to have some kind of um, legislation, a new a new way of thinking about them. And I think it has to come from more than the municipal governments. I think um, countrywide, they sh- the I don't know actually how laws are implemented or even discussed. But I think if we can start this discussion going. Um, now, before it gets even worse, it's not going to go away unless there's some laws that are enforceable. And then some kind of thought process that makes people think, oh, I'm going to look out for the other guy rather than trying to beat him or get ahead of him or cut him off. Or like you say, the guy who tried to cut you off in your car. And that was this, the dude who cut me off was trying to beat me to the sidewalk. Yeah. Like, well, hello. No. You don't, that's how it should not be how it works. You stop, you consider what's ahead of you, and you respect the other person. But I think it has to come, it has to be, um, I've spoken to some of the police about this, and there has to be legislation that is enforceable. And then there has to be some sort of repercussion, like fines if you don't wear helmets, or, and then they have to be documented. So the person has to have a license or some sort of a, you know, even like if you do your dog, you have to have a license so that then if you, if you don't have your helmet and the police, you have a, you know, they can identify who you are and charge you and it has to be something because it's going to be getting worse and worse. It will. And that's the problem. Unless we do something serious. And that's why I was reaching out to try to get some momentum going to figure out how we're going to, It's an interesting one because, as you mentioned, it's not just legislation, Cullen. It's also, you use the E word, and I'm not talking electric in this case. Mm. I'm talking enforcement. 
And mm. there has to be because the helmet laws are certainly there. And mm. uh, I know that there are more scooters and municipalities that have been partnering mm. with the scooter companies, the e-scooters, uh, mm. because it is environmentally friendly and a way to get people mm. uh, away from their vehicles. That's great. Fantastic. But mm. a lot of people are not going to be wearing helmets, and I see it all mm. the time. And mm-hmm. there is no enforcement. There's just common mm-hmm. sense, and that ain't that common. So no. that's really what you're dealing with. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think this is something that's worthy of uh, approaching the B.C. government about? Oh, completely, even federally, because I, I think that we, you don't want a Quebecer to come here and go, oh, what do you mean? I don't have to wear a helmet in Quebec or, I don't know, vice versa. Go there and then have... Or have the have the I think they should have some sort of law that says within each of these scooter bicycle e bike things there has to be an internal um, GPS system which slows it down when you get into a um, urban area or some such or other or a congested area or something like that. There's so much and more then, to talk about on this one. I yeah. appreciate your time, Colin, and sharing your story. That's Colin Goodyear, Ironman triathlete, oh, injured by an electric scooter this past July. And thanks for listening. Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. Well, drivers around Metro Vancouver sure aren't strangers to the idea, the concept of traffic cameras in intersections to catch people going through red lights and such. And there has been a lot of controversy over the years about speed cameras. But here's a story out of Seattle. And it has me thinking that there's a possibility of expansion in Vancouver to the camera idea and possibly taking it to the next level. You see, the Seattle Department of Transportation has identified three new locations for their traffic cameras, part of its automated pilot enforcement program, as they call it. Two new cameras will go into regular intersections and busy areas in the downtown. That's not a surprise nothing new. Many cities, including our own, have done that in the past. But what is new is this. There's going to be a third camera going up on the West Seattle Bridge, and its sole design is to fight or combat drivers who illegally use the bus lane to expedite their trip across a busy roadway. And it gets me thinking, can we use cameras for our own bus or HOV lanes to catch people that are going in those. Can they be automatic? Can you get a ticket? Is that the type of direction we want to be going in? And will it work? Our next guest is an expert when it comes to forensic traffic enforcement. You see, Grant Gottengrew is a former traffic cop with New Westminster and West Vancouver, and now a forensic traffic consultant at ForensicTrafficPro.com. Grant Gottengrew, pardon me, Grant Gottengrew, got your name right, barely. Um, (laughs) I've got to ask the question, though, does this work? Do you see these type of enforcement or uh, evidence-gathering systems having any uh, effect well first of all thanks for having me on your show this afternoon and um uh, you know i hear stories like this and i think that's exactly what we need is more government oversight i think the the 
I think people love how much the government is taking money out of our pockets. And I think the more they can do it, I think we would just all celebrate it as a society, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I think it's absolutely um, ludicrous. Uh, And, of course, uh, while the red light intersection cameras are, you know, useful in a sense that, yeah, the picture tells that you've crossed the, the, the... the mark stop line, so you're kind of guilty there. Uh, where do we stop, right? Like, where do we stop with, okay, now we're going to have cameras potentially for bus lanes. Are we going to take more and more um, power away from those hardworking traffic officers we've got in the police departments? And, uh, and everything's going to be automated. Everything's going to be on a camera. I mean, there's over 200 sections of the Motor Vehicle Act where, you you know, and, and most of those are violations. Uh, so are we going to have cameras for 80 or 90 different violations that people are going to get caught on? I mean, there has to be a cap at something. And a lot of these cameras are more set up for safety reasons, like high crash locations. You're not getting horrific fatal collisions in bus lanes by somebody illegally using it. So that one would definitely be nothing but a cash cow. Cash cow, and I also wonder if it's kind of a policy, um, almost some social engineering coming into play. And I kind of agree with what you're saying, but I would even take it one step further with this question. Do you think that we're coming up with a solution that's uh, in search of a problem, meaning that uh, nobody really ducks into bus lanes or it's a very small number of people and if they do they they could get caught as it is there's enforcement there are, out there yeah you're right there are very few designated bus lanes most people get confused because they see the diamond on the lane and they think it's an hov lane but of course the diamond just means it's a specially designated lane and you have to read the sign about what's allowed in that lane there aren't a lot of bus lanes around. Uh, the, the one that goes on to the Lionsgate Bridge from West Vancouver, that one gets abused quite often because people are stuck in, uh, in traffic. And then there's a little bus lane that comes from Pitt Meadows into uh, Port Coquitlam. It's a very short one that some people will use when traffic backs up. Um, then, of course, you got one on, obviously, uh, Highway 99. But it's not – most of those people that use those lanes are confused. They just automatically assume it's an HOV lane. That's what I experienced when I would pull people over in those lanes. We're talking with Grant Gokatru, a former traffic cop and now a traffic consultant, a forensic traffic consultant, crime <laughs> consultant with uh, ForensicTrafficPro.com. Grant, um, you know, when we're talking about – where there is a good place for these type of cameras, where is it? What do we want cameras for, if anywhere? Well, I have no problem with the red light ones, obviously, because those are put up in high crash locations, and those are designed for safety reasons. We're kind of limited other ways. The, uh, the, fo- the whole photo radar cameras, I could talk about that for an hour about what's wrong with them, Um, but we can save that for another show. But when it comes to cameras just capturing what I consider to be really minor and insignificant 
and not safety-related motor vehicle act infractions, that becomes abusive by the government and a complete waste of money because these camera systems are really expensive, and we as a taxpayer are paying for them. Okay, well, that's good to get your insight. And, of course, we haven't seen a move here But you never know, because uh, what happens in one jurisdiction, even if it's in the States, can get somebody thinking along those lines. Grant, thanks for sharing your time with us. My pleasure, Bruce. Thanks very much. That's Grant Gokutrue, a former traffic cop in New Westminster and West Vancouver, and now with his own firm, ForensicTrafficPro.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.